A quick note before we get started. Did you know we have an email list? Go to hpleadershippodcast.com and enter your email into the form at the bottom left to sign up. Get our PDF on common obstacles and teamwork sent right to your inbox. Subscribers get first listens on new shows and exclusive content. Sign up today, hpleadershippodcast.com. On episode 50 of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, Building Resilience. The low resilience person gets completely bent out of shape, starts explaining themselves. No, no, wait, you don't understand. See, I did that for a reason. You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Insights and information from world-class leadership experts. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Randy Lane. We finally made it to 50 episodes. To everyone who's been with us since the beginning, thanks so much. To anyone who's just found us, you've got 50 episodes worth of great content to listen to. Speaking of, today we're talking with Dr. Larry Richards. He's a lawyer and psychologist. Interesting background, right? Larry founded Lawyer Brain, a management consulting firm that works specifically with law firms. He uses neuroscience and psychology to help lawyers perform at their best. A lot of what Dr. Richards talked about applies to just about everyone, so we talked to him mostly about building resilience. How do you deal when things get overwhelming? And now, here's our talk with Dr. Larry Richards. Today, I'm very excited about this podcast because about a month ago, I had the unique opportunity. I live in Waco, Texas, been invited over to Baylor University to the law school because they had a a speaker in that the assistant dean thought I would really be interested in hearing. And his name is Larry Richards. He's on our podcast today. And we went to lunch with a group and spent some time talking. And it was like we were brothers from another mother, in a (laughs) sense, because uh, a lot of the stuff we talked about, it was like we were pinging back and forth. We agreed on a lot of stuff. But Larry has a very unique niche. And so I asked him if he could carve out a little bit of time and be on the podcast with us today. So, Larry, thank you so much for carving out some time and, and being here today. Oh, well, thank you, Chip. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. Again, I gave it away a little bit. I'm at the Baylor Law School, and there's a whole auditorium full of people waiting to hear you speak, and I had no idea what you were going to talk about. When they introduced you and you started talking, you talked about your niche, which is working with attorneys, lawyers, and law firms. So how did that come about? How, how did you pick that as your, your niche? I backed into it uh, out of sheer desperation, Chip. Um, I, I come I come from a uh, a family of lawyers going back three generations, and uh, just about everybody in the family aunts, uncles, cousins uh, were, were even suspicious of the family dog, and uh, <laughs> they were all lawyers. And just about every one of them loved practicing law. I just assumed that I would always go follow their footsteps and enjoy it and have a wonderful career. And that would be that. So I took the prescribed pre-law courses in college, which I hated. And every free credit I could find, I took psychology courses. Hmm. And I got to law school and I hated it. And every time I had an opportunity, I tried to shape what I was studying as a lawyer into law and psychology. There's a theme here. Then I went out into practice and... I try to make my practice more psychologically oriented. But the the more I spend time in the traditional things that lawyers do, the less I like my work. 
Hmm. After 10 years of trying different jobs as a practicing lawyer, I really felt burnout physically, emotionally. And I just said, I can't, I can't keep doing this. I think I've made a mistake. And I did some soul searching and I saw this strong recurring theme that psychology has run through everything I've done. And I just said, why not just make it official and go back to school and junk the, the first career and just start over. So I earned a PhD in psychology, but not before I had a fateful dinner with a friend of mine from high school. When I made the decision to leave law and to go into psychology, all I really knew at that point was clinical psychology, which is the well-known popular version of what psychologists do. Uh, somebody in a tweed jacket with leather elbow patches, uh, you know, sits in their office and uh, helps you solve your life problems. Well, my friend Dick uh, had just graduated from Temple from a program in organizational psychology. And he told me about his program. And I said, I don't, I've never heard of organizational psychology. What is it? And he said, Larry, it's like doing therapy with an organization or a company instead of an individual. And that just captured my imagination. I can hear his words many, many, many years later as if it was yesterday. And it made me think, wow, I could do that with law firms and law departments and companies. And every time I told a friend about my idea, they say, well, they sure need that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I'm not sure what they meant by that, but it seemed to be a common enough refrain. And so that's what I did. I went uh, to graduate school with the idea of uh, turning the study of the psychology of how people behave in the workplace and how to improve, how to maximize, how to optimize performance in the workplace through the filter of the legal profession. Now, the legal profession, by the way, is the largest profession in the world. As such, everybody either is a lawyer or knows one. That's true. So that is true. I thought, you know, there's something here that's fairly universal. And while I can operate on the very local level and, and help individual clients and individual firms and, and companies, I think I'm also operating in a field where there's some value in what I'm learning about this particular group that extends to other groups. So over the years, I've had people say, you know, I've learned from you uh, in terms of engineers, or I've learned in terms of actuaries or insurance people or bankers. There's some similarities between many other occupations and lawyers. And I'm, I'm constantly made aware of that by people I'm in contact with. Yeah. When I came to the law school to listen to you speak a month or so back, everything that you talked about was extremely interesting, but also it's applicable across multiple verticals, multiple organizations. But when you tied it back to some of the specifics around the way the brain of an attorney is wired or what attracts people into the law profession, but then what do they struggle with once they're in it? I found that part very interesting. I mean, is that Mm -hmm. a common reoccurring theme with your clients? Yeah, it is. The topic of change, which everybody is familiar with because we're all in the middle of it, that's something that everybody can join the conversation around. But what's a little bit less frequently talked about is what are the psychological consequences of that change and how does that affect people in general 
And that we have a lot of well-documented scientific information on. But what's striking to me is lawyers, for a number of reasons I'll, I'll mention in a second, are much more vulnerable to the effects of those changes than the average person is. So, so let's take change. We all have heard the idea that human beings are well-designed to cope with change, but mainly when you hear that, it's, a, it's about episodic change, change that has a start, a short middle, and a finish. Mm-hmm. And the classic example is, you know, back in the cave days, uh, you're sitting in your cave having dinner, and there's a roar out in front of the cave, and it's a saber-toothed tiger, and you immediately go into fight, flight, or freeze mode, and you address the crisis. You either hide from the tiger or you kill the tiger or you run away. You do something, and in minutes, the episode is ended, mm-hmm. happily or not so. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, we're designed very well to cope with those kinds of one-off change moments. What we're not designed well for is nonstop, relentless, implacable, constant change, especially change that continues to even accelerate, that leaves us in a state of uncertainty, consternation, concern about what's going to happen next. Shortly before we logged on for our call today, I got a call from a law firm and they describe something that I must have heard two dozen times in the last, I don't know, three months. Our firm, our partners are suffering because everything is changing. Clients are changing. Practices are changing. Technology is changing. Our competitors are changing. Expectations are changing. Our associates are changing. Compensation methods are changing. And they went on and on and on. Sure. And this is just a a common experience. Everybody's experiencing this kind of change and people don't really have time to catch their breath. Now, this type of change causes a number of things in, in any human being. Things like constant change sets off the threat detector mechanism in the brain, the amygdala. The amygdala is basically two little organs in your brain that scan your environment 24 seven and ask one question, am I safe? Mm-hmm. Is there a threat out there? And when it detects a threat, and the way, it, the way it detects a threat is it checks out if there's anything changing. Change is the trigger that makes your amygdala tap you on the metaphorical shoulder and say, hey, you better pay attention to this. It's different from what you're used to. If that amygdala is fired up all the time, studies have shown that that actually causes the amygdala to be much more threat sensitive. In other words, it fires off earlier and more frequently and the amygdala grows, which means it's occupying more real estate in the brain, more blood flow, more, it becomes more of a central character. And that means we're, we're recruiting cognitive resources. We're taking stuff away from our ability to do our normal daily thinking. And instead that those cognitive capacities are reallocated to the the task of save me from whatever unknown threat all this uncertainty is scaring me about. So sometimes that plays out in behaviors like we get more distractible. 
we make more mistakes, especially errors of omission. Oh, I forgot to uh, you know, turn the stove off. We don't read things as carefully as we used to. Our messages get much, much, much shorter. Uh, I've talked to clients who say they used to do four-hour seminars and they don't do them anymore. Everything is 30 minutes or less because people don't have the, the bandwidth to pay attention to things anymore. So change has these known consequences. Change also has intra and interpersonal consequences. It makes us be a little bit more inwardly focused. We become less connected to other people. The focus when, when you're in one of these modes is that we, we become a little bit more self-focused and a little bit less skilled at reaching out to others. We become more critical when we do reach out to others. We tend to be, we get into what I call leave me alone mode. Leave me alone. I've had enough. Yep. That's not a good place to be. Things usually go downhill from there. And that generates negative emotions. What we know from neuroscience research is that when we experience negative emotions, it narrows our focus so that the brain can focus just on the source of the threat. But since there is no source of the threat, it's just this vague, unknown, everything's changing. The brain just keeps perseverating and iterating and going, well, where's the change? Where's the change? Where's the threat? Where's the threat? And every time it does that, it makes it easier for us to experience fear, depression, sadness, irritability, negative emotions. Sure. And harder to pay attention to positive stuff that might even be right in front of our eyes, but we miss it. So everything I've said so far is about change and its effects on people in general. Do you find now, that, that attorneys are wired differently than most, just in general? As a famous governor once said, you betcha. Okay. <laughs> Yes, attorneys are wired quite differently, and there are two reasons for that. One is the nature of what lawyers do. I don't know if your listeners are aware. I'm sure your listeners, some of them are attorneys, and some of them, many of them know attorneys. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure if they've ever spent a lot of time thinking about this point, which is to be a good lawyer and to protect your client, one of the main things that you have to do cognitively is look for problems. You have to think in a kind of a dark way and be constantly asking the questions, what's wrong? What could go wrong? Who's at fault? Is there any exception? I don't care about the 95% that's great. I want to know about that 5% that's bad or that could become bad. And that's what you have to do. And most people, when a lawyer is doing that on their behalf, are relieved. They're, they're you know, thank goodness my lawyer is checking that out. Mm -hmm. But the lawyer, it's no picnic because what you have to do is constantly be in this suspicious mode. There's also an interpersonal version of that, that type of vigilance, which is in addition to looking for problems, which is kind of about the content of what you're discussing, you also have to be suspicious about people who give you information. What's your motive? What's your hidden agenda? Why are you asking me that question? And why now? Is there some reason? You have some angle here? Yeah. How are you going to use this against me later? Yeah. How are you going to use it against me? What are you really after? It's like nothing is what it appears. We always have to be vigilant and suspicious. Those are good qualities for somebody who wants to be a top-notch lawyer and let their clients sleep at night, even if the lawyer may have no sleep that night. So these are good qualities. So the problem is we now know that, uh, again, from neuroscience research, that 
when a person has a steady diet of these negative thoughts, thoughts are directly linked to feelings and negative thoughts precipitate negative feelings. So for example, the legal profession suffers 3.6 times as much depression as the general public. Wow. I didn't know that. And a large contributor to that excessive statistic is the negative thinking. So I said there are two reasons that lawyers are wired differently. So one is that they have this job to do that's very negative and it leads to the natural consequences of that negative thinking. The second one is if you just ask yourself, who would be attracted to a job or to a career where what you do every day is think negatively and get suspicious of people? Yeah. Well, there are certain personalities that think that way. So for example, there's a trait called skepticism and it won't surprise you if I tell you that in my 30 years of, psycho of personality research, skepticism is consistently the number one atypical trait. That is, lawyers are way higher on that trait than just about anybody else. Maybe engineers are close to them. Lawyers are clearly king of the mountain when it comes to skepticism, way higher than the general public. Makes and that makes sense because if that's your natural come from, then working in a job where you have to use that skepticism every day makes a lot of sense. Sure. So we get a skeptical, we get two layers of skepticism. It's the job description, and then it's the personality who does that job. And that really, really wires lawyers to a fairly well to notice the bad and to miss the good. And that puts them in a position of great vulnerability when they encounter a world of unending change because that's pushing us already in a negative direction. And if you've got a lot of negativity that you're already primed for, an environment out in the external world that's negative is just adding fuel to that fire. Oh, absolutely. So when I met you, like I mentioned a month ago, you have a an auditorium full of young minds that are about to graduate or close to graduating from Baylor Law School to go out into the world, and you paint this picture of here is the natural tendencies that probably drew you to this profession, spent the money, you've spent the time, you're about to graduate. Now, how do we balance this with the natural tendency and flip that to where they don't get caught in this negative possible spiral or rabbit hole that they can't seem to get out of? Right. So um, you've heard the phrase, it gets worse before it gets better. So there's one more piece that's going to depress everybody that I need to add. <laughs> oh, there's to, more. There's okay. more, yeah. In fact, when I, when I speak before audiences of lawyers, I always tell them my job, if I, if I do this presentation correctly, it's, um, you, you should be depressed, clinically depressed by about <laughs> 10 minutes into my presentation, but don't leave the room at that point because there's, there's some good news after that. So here's the last piece of bad news. There's another psychological trait called resilience. And lawyers are ridiculously low in psychological resilience. Resilience is about how you deal with adversity, whether the adversity is some major you know, life challenge or just a simple thing like somebody said a, a side word comment to you or you, you got a bad grade in school or you didn't get included in a meeting you wanted to be in. These are common everyday bumps in the road that we all experience, but the high resilience person deals with them like they're just nothing. They roll off their back. 
the low resilience person gets completely bent out of shape, gets defensive, feels wounded, feels hurt, starts explaining themselves. No, no, wait, you don't understand. See, I did that for a reason. They start counterattacking. Oh, you think I got a problem? Let me, let me tell you what you did. Mm. You know, we do all of these defensive responses so that we can make the pain go away. We don't want somebody causing us this hiccup that makes us feel bad. Well, that's, that's low resilience. So again, this trait, like most other traits, is distributed on a bell curve across the general population. You've got some high resilience people. You've got some low resilience people. Most people are in the middle, 50%. Where are lawyers? First of all, they're 20% lower than the public. Mm-hmm. They average 30%, and they are reliably lower than the public. Every year I test them, and every year it's dead center on 30%. It just doesn't vary. But the real story here is this is not your classic bell curve distribution. This is a what psychologists call a skewed distribution, which means 90% of the lawyers I test year in and year out have a resilience score in the bottom half of the scale. And the standing joke is, when again, when I speak to audiences of lawyers, I say to them, if you feel bad that I've told you that statistic, that illustrates the very trait that we're talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Low resilience is is problematic in a couple of ways. I mentioned that um, when, when you and I were talking about this presentation, that while I haven't mentioned the word leadership a lot, everything I've been saying is directly related to leadership because leadership, according to John Cotter at Harvard, leadership and the need, the felt need that anyone in an organization feels for leadership, please somebody lead us, that feeling emerges from uncertainty and external change. Mm -hmm. And the more external change there is, the more people in your organization start feeling like we need leadership. We need someone to guide us in a certain direction. By definition, because leadership is founded on change and uncertainty, no leader ever can make a certain 100% statement, this is the direction and you can count on it. I'm 100% confident. There's always going to be that doubt, which means leaders always have to rely on trust from the constituents that they seek to have follow them. Sure. And to build trust, there are two things that really inhibit, interfere with, destroy the ability to build trust between a leader and his or her followers. One of them is skepticism. And the other is resilience. <laughs> Rutro Raggy, we got a problem. Oh. <laughs> I, I think our work here is done. That's right. Uh, high skepticism. Skepticism is, is what I call a reciprocal trait. If I'm skeptical with you, it will trigger you being skeptical with me. Everybody knows that from their own experience. Mm-hmm. So if I'm a, a leader and I'm skeptical, then you and I say, Chip, why don't you follow me on this? Trust me. This is going to work out well. I think we should go down this path. You're going to be like, oh, really? (laughs) Like, why should I? Because if I'm skeptical with you, you're skeptical with me. Resilience enters into leadership in this way. Every leader knows this from experience. Leaders have a target on their back. They get criticized more than other people. We as human beings naturally place more importance on our leaders. 
even somebody who's a peer of yours, who is for some reason, it's their turn to stand up in front of the room and do a presentation when they're standing in front of the room under the trappings of their being a leader for that moment, they can ask the audience to do things that would never work sitting in the chair next to their peers. So if I stand in front of a room and I say, okay, everybody stand up, we're going to do an activity. Everybody stands up. Mm -hmm. If I was just sitting in the audience and I stood up and said, hey, everybody stand up, we're going to do an activity. <laughs> Who's People that guy? Like I've lost my mind. Yep. <laughs> so there's something that happens as soon as we cloak ourselves in the symbols of leadership that makes us pay more attention and place more importance on what that leader says and does because leaders role model. What, we, what they do is what we follow. And therefore, if, if a leader gets criticized, we carefully look at how that leader responds. And since leaders get criticized more often, if the leader, him or herself, is fairly low in resilience, what do you think they're going to do when they get criticized? They're going to get very defensive. Yep. Mm -hmm. They're going to start explaining and making excuses instead of going, well, that's a really interesting point. I'm glad you raised it. And when a leader gets defensive, they lose trust and they lose followership. So resilience is not a very good trait for leadership. All right. So, so lawyers are worse on both of these than the general public. And lawyers have to step into leadership roles every day. Sometimes they're formal roles. Every law firm and law department has formal leadership roles, which they didn't have 15 years ago. Because we need leadership in legal organizations just like everywhere else nowadays. Sure. And even the rank and file lawyers have to be leaders because when you think about what leaders do, they really do two things. Number one, they set a direction. And number two, they try to mobilize their constituents to voluntarily move in that direction. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's leadership distilled down to its bare essentials. That's all we need. Yeah. And <laughs> if you're going to do that, how do you do that in a way? And well, first of all, think about those two things. What lawyers do every day with a client is they give direction. Well, I recommend you do this and you don't do that. And then they try to encourage the client to follow their advice. So lawyers are in effect in a leadership role every time they advise a client. And therefore, I believe that they are enhancing their leadership capacity if they can improve the way that they deal with those two traits. What does science tell us about how to cope with change, uncertainty, and the stress that it causes, even in highly skeptical and low resilient lawyers? And the answer is, there has been an emerging body of science for about the last 20 years on building psychological resilience. So much of this originally came out of the University of Pennsylvania, Marty Seligman and Karen Rivich and many others that um, studied with them. And it's expanded now to many contributors all over the world. And we now have at this point in 2017, a rich trove of scientifically based strategies that can help anybody build their psychological resilience. And basically what you're doing when you quote, build psychological resilience is you're physiologically, you are training your brain to respond differently to adversity. You're building new neural pathways for more functional, appropriate, positive responses to the things that used to get you derailed. And you can't change, let's assume you can't change the sources of stress and uncertainty that are coming at you, 
but you can change how you respond to them. And that seems often to people like a small thing, but it's not. Changing your mindset, changing the way you respond can be a huge, huge mediator in, in terms of how you feel at the end of the day, the week, the year. Um, it can make a huge difference. So there are two core strategies for building resilience and about a dozen non-core strategies, kind of icing on the cake strategies. The two core strategies, we call it think differently, connect more. The think differently part is every time something happens that triggers a low resilience response. I mentioned before getting a bad grade as a student or being excluded from a meeting or getting criticized by somebody. Every time that happens, the event itself is not what causes your distress. It's your soundtrack in your brain, your thought patterns that interpret that event and then whisper sweet nothings into your brain. If people are listening um, to, to this podcast and they're going, wonder what voice he's talking about. Whatever voice just said that in your head, that's the voice. <laughs> that's the voice. Huh? That's the one. That's the voice. And, and that voice is not inconsequential. When you change that voice, and by the way, some people don't realize that you're the editor. You can actually change that voice. And when you do, it can be very powerful. Changing that voice can produce, because a voice is a thought, and when you change a thought, you change the feeling response that you have as an organism. And if you change that thought and rehearse the change, and then you start mentally linking that new pattern to a similar situation that's frequently recurring, then the next time that actually recurs, your brain now has a choice. It has the old pattern, and it has this new pattern that you've trained it to use. And if you pick the new pattern, which most brains like to do because it feels better, you get a much better result. So the two things that produce that kind of learning, number one is reframing the negative voices, you know, the voice of doom. Instead of, let's, let's take the example of a, somebody criticized me. Well, some people, I'm going to exaggerate here to make the point, but some people would say, oh my God, I just got criticized. It feels so bad. I can't believe they criticized me. I do good work. I don't know what they're talking about. Oh my God, if that's what this person thinks, maybe everybody thinks that, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. I don't know anything else. I'll be, have to be you know, living in a tent in the middle of the park. And it goes downhill from there. Now, that's one way to think of it. Here's another completely different way to think about the criticism. Here's what your voice in your head could say instead. It could say, hey, that criticism is unpleasant, but you know, maybe there's some truth in it. Let me think about it and see if there's anything I can learn. I don't have to take the whole thing in, but maybe I can learn something from it. Number two, everything that I can think of in my world, I, I generally have pretty good feedback from people about what I do. In the overall scheme of things, this particular criticism is really relatively small. And I can rest assured that I'm doing pretty good things in the world because of all this other feedback. I'm not going to use that to negate this feedback, but I want to see it in perspective so it doesn't get me all bent out of shape. Sure. And point three, I've had setbacks in the past, and at the time they always seem really big, but I know one thing. I know that in the rearview mirror a couple of weeks down the road, this is going to look really small. So I really should take that to heart now instead of waiting for two weeks. Now, that, that set of three responses is what we'll call a more optimistic thought pattern. 
Sure. And if it's not your natural way of thinking, all you have to do is program it into your brain and say, well, why don't I try this instead? And do an empirical experiment. You don't have to take my word for it. Try out the next time you get criticized, try out saying something like I just said, instead of whatever your brain's programmed to do, and then repeat it just like you do with shampoo, right? Lather, rinse, repeat. (laughs) Do the same thing with this over and over and over until it becomes so automated that you don't have to think about it. You can do it while you're chewing gum. And the next time somebody criticizes you, your brain's going to go, oh, wait, I have a, a routine for this. Okay, so now I have a question for you because we we have avid listeners that listen all the time. We talk about the response chain. So an yep. event happens, a stimulus, something happens, and the brain goes through what we call the response chain. The, it creates a meaning. That meaning then creates a feeling, and that yep. feeling creates your behavior. But we've also talked about, well, when a, an event happens, stimulus is the feeling come before the meaning? And then the meaning is what drives our behavior. And to change right. an outcome, we have to change the meaning of what has happened. Yep. Do you think that the meaning is first, followed by the feeling, and then the feeling is how we behave? Or do you think the feeling instantly comes, and then we have to reframe the way it mean, what it means to us before we behave. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's research on this that's still emerging. And my understanding of where we are in the science of this is that there's definitely evidence that feeling can come first and shape the meaning. In fact, there's a, a wonderful study that's one of my favorites about people walking, men walking across a rope bridge. Do you know that study? I don't, no. They had men walk across a rope bridge and they intentionally picked an attractive female assistant who at the end, uh, or as the men neared the end of the rope bridge, um, she would call out to them something about, you know, after you're done with this activity, I'd like to talk to you, blah, blah, blah. If they heard the voice but didn't see her, the uh, butterflies in their stomach, they interpreted as fear. But if they saw her, most of the men had a reaction that basically said, oh, I must be excited because there's this beautiful woman. And they interpreted the queasy feeling in their stomach as excitement and attraction. Hmm. And so two different interpretations, the feeling came first and they were able to measure this in time sequence and show from these two conditions that the feeling led to the thought. Um, But we don't have any evidence that's conclusive to my knowledge that says it always goes in this direction. I'm, uh, in fact, I can think of examples that work just the opposite. So I think both can be true and I'm not sure I'd be interested to see where the research goes to help us learn under what conditions is the thought first and under what conditions is the feeling first. It almost doesn't matter for purposes of building your resilience because if you concentrate on building that narrative, if the narrative comes first, you're good to go. If the feeling comes first, if you rehearse this by imagining that feeling is coming, I know it's gonna be there, but before we get to it, I wanna practice this automated response and you chain link when the feeling occurs instead of the program pattern, I'm gonna go to this new pattern that I've just created, then you can succeed as well. So create space between the stimulus and the response that changes the way we react to the response. Exactly. Whether that whether that middle piece is feeling first and thought second or mm-hmm. vice versa, I think you and I are completely on the same wavelength about the 
sequence. Sure. And, uh, and the fact that, you know, unlike animals, I mean, my cat is basically stimulus response with nothing in between. Mm-hmm. And, and if I pet my cat, you know, he purrs. If I pet him right behind the right ear, he bites me. <laughs> and he doesn't, he, I've pet him uh, probably a thousand times. He doesn't say, oh, well, you know, this is Larry. He's petting me. Everything's cool. If I, you know, pet him behind the right ear, he, he doesn't stop and go, well, that hurts and it feels threatening. But, but then it is Larry. I mean, he pets me every day. And of course, he's no threat. So I'm not going to bite him. My cat just goes. <sighs> yeah. And he bites me. There's no space between stimulus no and response. There's no space between the stimulus and response. That's what makes humans different. We're, we're different from animals. Mm-hmm. So the, I said there are two things that build resilience. The first, I've talked about changing this stimulus response pattern. The second one is more emotional, and that is building a web of authentic connections, human connection, social connection. There's a lot of really good emerging neuroscience on the importance of strong social connections. And social connections turn out to be insulating. They turn out to be, they produce a, a, a chemical neurotransmitter, oxytocin, that's often called the love hormone or the trust hormone. It, it tends to produce a lot of nice behaviors in human beings that make us bond with those close to us and make us behave in nice ways and make us more collaborative and make us friendlier and make us less stressed and less critical and friendly and all the good things that we like and admire in others. And it turns out it also builds psychological resilience. So part of that is because when you have other people that can support you in a time of crisis, whether it's a, you know, a a one-off criticism or a challenge that is going to take months to deal with, having a support system that you feel authentically close to really helps that resilience stay high. And people that are isolated and lonely don't have that benefit. Mm -hmm. And luckily it is something you can cultivate. So we teach people in our resilience training programs both cognitive modifications and strategies for building social connection. In that same research, the the release of oxytocin in the brain is that love hormone, the the, the connection. But I've also learned, and, and maybe you can help me think through this, is that stress is the number one deterrent of release of oxytocin in the brain. So That's right. if change creates stress it naturally works against our innate ability to manage or become resilient. Would you agree? So how do we manage that stress? And you're saying, if I understand correctly, a strong support group will help reduce that stress at the level if we try and do it alone versus in a group. If I only had some ham, I could have a ham and cheese sandwich if I only had some cheese. So <laughs> you're smarter than I am. It's, it's like, how do we get started when we got nothing? Yeah. Right. So I think the, the basic idea, I, I agree with you that, that stress releases cortisol and adrenaline, and those are nasty chemicals and they can side rail um, the production of oxytocin. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it reminds me of Steve Martin's old line, you want to be a millionaire first get a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's step one. So, all right, Steve, how, so how do you get oxytocin if this nasty chemical cortisol is in the way? Right. The first thing is you have to interrupt the stress sequence and most stress management techniques 
are basically, they do two things. One is they interrupt the stress sequence. And then the second thing is they transition you to a sequence that naturally produces oxytocin and serotonin. Those are two calming hormones. Mm -hmm. So the, your question is more directed at the first part, which is how do you interrupt that right. process? And there are a number of things that can do that. Number one, step out of whatever situation is causing the source of stress, if that's a possibility. Sometimes it's not, but often it is. Often, so if I'm working at my computer on a very stressful thing and I'm under a deadline, it's very seductive to think I've got to finish this and then I'll allow myself to take a break. But what I've trained myself to do is if I get to that sticking point where I just feel like my brain's starting to decompensate and I can't think anymore, and it's just going to go downhill from here, I stop, I get up, I go and walk outside around the block. There's a lot of evidence. There's a, an area of psychology that's called elevation research, where they study what are the experiences that elevate human beings, that bring out our best. And so nature is one of those things. Just to spend time seeing trees or bodies of water or open fields or elements in nature that are awesome, things that are larger than us, you know, Grand Canyon, things that are remarkable creations of nature, flowers. Seeing these things has an uplifting effect on just about all human beings, and it produces these positive chemicals. And what we know is that when you are in a state where you're producing these positive chemicals, the brain has an either-or chemical production factory. If you're producing the positive chemicals, you can't produce the cortisol and the adrenaline. You can't produce the negative stress hormones. So by getting yourself out into nature for a moment, you disrupt that process. Number two, breathing. Breathing is physiologically a link between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems. The sympathetic nervous system is the, the system of functions in your body that produces stress response that makes you go, oh boy, you know, and, and uh, makes you sweat and makes your heart beat faster and all of that stuff. And you want to interrupt that. Um, the parasympathetic nervous system is the part of the physiology that is relaxed and calm and serene. Well, how do you transition? Breathing is the link. When you breathe deeply, when you oxygenate your cells, when you breathe from the belly, you stop, you suck in a deep breath, you slowly let it out twice as long as the inhale took, it's calming. Again, it shifts the chemical production from negative chemicals to positive chemicals. And so if you just did either of these two things, stop what you're doing and get out in nature and or take a couple of slow, long, deep breaths, those are instant disruptors of a negative stress experience, and they allow you to plug into the positive chemicals. And then from there, you can start using some of the strategies that I mentioned. You are now in a better position to start using the cognitive interventions that I mentioned, or to start building social connection with somebody. Because who wants to be around somebody who's all stressed out, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's funny you mentioned all this. My uh, oldest son had some anger issues in school that he's gotten a much better control of. And those were the, the two things that they would say to him all the time is separate himself from the situation that's causing him to be angry and then to do certain breathing exercises. And so yep. I feel like the whole idea of breathing exercises, meditation, mindfulness, that's used to be 
kind of a hippie woo-woo type of thing, but now more people are getting on board and seeing the benefits. That's absolutely right, Randy. And um, I'm glad you brought up meditation and mindfulness because that's the next level I was going to mention. That takes a little bit more skill and a little more practice than nature and breathing, but it's um, it has the same potential for uh, actually even greater potential to interrupt these negative experiences. And the the other thing about a meditation or any other kind of mindfulness practice like Tai Chi or yoga, those experiences are at their peak when you've built a base layer. So the more you do, the more you train your brain to meditate, the more you're actually training your attention. And the reason this has moved from um, flaky flower child woo-woo stuff to more mainstream corporate types of interventions is because almost thanks to the work of one person, Richard Davidson at University of Wisconsin, he spent his entire career, 30 plus years, studying the neuropsychology of meditation. He actually, uh, there's a book he wrote that's marvelous called The Emotional Life of Your Brain. And he talks about how 30 years ago, he was lugging huge, you know, huge Hewlett Packard oscilloscopes and other equipment on pack mules through the mountains in Nepal to get to Buddhist monks who had agreed to let him measure their brain waves while they were meditating. There were mountain passes as thin as a mule path with no guardrail. And it's like, okay, did you make it? You know, are you here to tell the story? Well, he is writing the book after all. So um, it's, it's marvelous research. And what it shows us at a neuroscience, neuropsychology level is that people who meditate on a regular basis change their brain. They literally change their brain and they start training the regions of the brain that pay attention to focus more. It starts training the amygdala to quiet down and to be less threat sensitive. And it starts training the body how to produce these serene chemicals, these serene neurotransmitters. So all of those things are beneficial to anyone who wants to have a more serene experience in life. It's good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually started doing meditation in the morning. I've been doing it for probably about three months and I do feel a lot more like calm and centered. And then I'm a big fan of technology. So I actually forgot it today, but I have an Apple watch usually, and I have it set to Mm -hmm have me do breathing exercises every two hours. It's just a couple minutes, but I do notice a much more calmer, centered level when I do that. And then also here at work, we, we live in a pretty cool little area. And if I get to a point where I'm just frustrated sitting in front of the computer screen, I'll just put out to the group that I'm going to go for a 10-minute walk. And I feel so much better and so much more focused because I'm out there breathing and I'm exercising and I'm out in nature. We got big trees and stuff. And I feel much better after that. So I totally see all the effects of that. Yep. You know, that's a great way to integrate a lot of the things that we've been talking about here. And and I love that app on the Apple Watch. I've got the same one. And I love the little sound that it makes, you know, the little mm-hmm. chime. Ping. Now it's time to breathe. Mm-hmm. And it's actually that little ping on your watch is actually training your brain. It's time to shift your state, shift your psychological experience. Mm-hmm. So it's it's simple, but really effective. I also find that like, so I do CrossFit, which is kind of an extreme exercise, but I feel like a situation of mindfulness can also be when your body is doing something to the point where you can no longer just think about other stuff mindlessly. Like if I would go running, I can think about all the other stuff that's going on in my life. But if you're doing something that is taxing you so physically 
or you have to have your body in specific positions. You can't think about other things. And that to me is also kind of a break from the norm. Yeah. So you're describing what um, one of the famous positive psychologists, that is a psychologist in this area called positive psychology named uh, Mike Csikszentmihalyi, he's devoted his career to this thing he calls flow. Mm-hmm. And the experience of flow is I'm so absorbed in what I'm doing that the whole rest of the world drops away. Mm-hmm. And that turns out to be a very positive experience for human beings. So when you go through CrossFit and you're totally focused on doing the moves that you need to do, it's very healthy for you to block out the world for that block of time. I wouldn't recommend it all the time, but <laughs> you know the, that moment can be very satisfying to you as an individual. And everybody needs that flow experience during some part of their waking hours. So I'm going to pivot for a second and ask you, if if I'm an attorney, I have a firm, let's say I'm listening to this podcast, I don't know who you are, I don't know anything about this, and I identify with some of the stuff that you're talking about, and I picked up the phone, sent you an email, called you and said, hey, Larry, I listened to this podcast, I like what you had to say, where do we start? If I was to work with you, what would that look like, or where do you start? How do you start that engagement with a a new firm, whether it's an individual or a large group of attorneys, what's the starting point? I almost always start with a simple speaking engagement because given the skepticism level of lawyers, Chip, (laughs) uh, if you try to pitch the idea of doing something um, to actually produce these kinds of positive benefits across the firm, even though it's positive, you're going to get a lot of pushback from people who are suspicious you know, it's the lawyer training to ask, oh, so, you know, what's the science? Have, have, has anyone in, who's done this ever been sued? Um, what are the potential liabilities? There's all kinds of horrible things we could think about. <laughs> they, you know, the chance of them happening might be one in a, a million, but we think about them. Yep. So you don't want to try to sell an entire program, uh, even though it's helpful of helping lawyers to condition themselves to cope better with change and stress and uncertainty right off the bat. What I do normally is I try to do a presentation, you know, like a retreat or a lunch and learn or a workshop because lawyers are learners. They like learning new things Mm -hmm. and it gives us a chance to get to know each other. They hear me present this material. It allows them to ease into the topic, to ask questions that allay any concerns that they have. And then I usually, after a presentation, um, start a conversation with the firm's leadership or continue a conversation with the firm's leadership to talk about what are some of the more concrete, practical steps that leadership could take in the firm to help their rank-and-file lawyers and their other personnel to cope better with these changes. Because a lot of those things, let's divide it into two areas. There are things that you as an individual can do, and anyone listening to this today could take away some of the things that we've talked about and say, well, that's that's helpful. I could figure out a way to change my thinking patterns, or I could spend more time with family or friends. That's easy. But there are systematic policy-level interventions that the leadership of any organization can make as well that make it more likely that the people working in that organization are going to have the resources they need to cope with uncertainty. So it's both levels, teach the individual, teach the leaders so that they can implement more policy level 
things. And that's the follow-up that I usually talk about after an initial presentation. So if I'm an attorney and I'm skeptical and I'm listening to this podcast and I want to research and learn more about your philosophy and what you do and so on and so forth, what books would you recommend to me? What websites or what could I do to get a little more comfortable with this idea? So I, I'd recommend that people go to my website, which is lawyerbrain.com. Okay. And on there, I have lots of free resources, articles that people can download and um, links to websites and my blog, which writes, uh, I write a lot about these topics and, and give away lots of free stuff to help people, you know, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. But one of the things I haven't done that um, you just reminded me is something that I mean to do this year is I want to add a page to my website uh, that is a bibliography. I'm a voracious reader. I read probably a hundred psychology books a year and, uh, and articles and web pages and so forth. And a lot of them are really good books for the lay reader. And I like to do an annotated bibliography where I recommend books that I've found useful. And if you read this book, here's what you'll learn from it, that type of thing. So, I can certainly mention in the resilience field, the Bible is The Resilience Factor by Karen Rybich and Andrew Chate. There are other books out there as well that are starting to emerge, but that's the the classic one. In leadership, I like Kuzas and Posner's The Leadership Challenge and many of the other related books that they've written since. If we get started on books, we'll need another week-long podcast. Sure. I, I've been to your website and, and the time that we spent together, I can tell you're very informed on this subject title and, and everything else. I I, um, I find it fascinating every time, and we've met a couple of times now, every time we talk, I learn something new every single time. So I hope that you you grace us with your presence multiple times on this podcast over the years, because again, I think our our listeners will definitely benefit. I always benefit. I know that. And um, it's interesting, uh, the field that you've picked and and the uh, almost the oxymoron between the way the brain functions and the way attorneys are typically wired and how you can help them. So I, I find it fascinating. I, I really do. Well, you're very kind to say that, Chip. And it, it's always, to me, it's just a, a personal pleasure to have this kind of conversation because, as you can probably tell, I just... I'm so passionate about this topic and, and it really helps people. It makes a difference and it makes a, an immediate difference. I mean, you can put these things to, to work at once and I've used everything I've talked about. I've tried myself. And so I am, I am, you know, Guinea pig number one. And if, if I, I consider myself a kind of a tough nut to crack. And uh, if it, if it, produces a benefit for me, I figure, well, at least there's some other people out there it'll produce a benefit for. So I'm happy to have this conversation and I'm so grateful to you for inviting me to spend the time with you today. Well, I appreciate it. So if, if people want to contact you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? On the website, go to lawyerbrain.com and my contact information, cell phone, uh, email, it's all on there. Great. Excellent. We'll link it in the show notes. So we'll put it on the show notes and Well, Larry, thank you so much. We truly appreciate it. And again, like I said, I I hope you come back on over and over and over again and become a regular because it's it's always fascinating to, to get a little piece of what you talk about. It's wonderful. Thank you. It would be my pleasure. Thank you, Chip. And thank you, Randy. All right. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Every little bit helps. Our website is hpleadershippodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hpleadershippodcast. Follow us on Twitter at hpl underscore podcast. And shoot us an email at podcast at 360solutions.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.